Twelve Byzantine Rulers by Lars Brownworth Episode 8, Justinian, Part 2 Welcome back. Last time I talked about the rise of the Emperor Justinian, from his uncle's reign to his coronation and the Nika riots, which left the capital smoldering in ruins and Justinian secure on his throne. This presented the young emperor with the opportunity to launch a massive building campaign, the likes of which the empire had not seen since the days of Constantine. But perhaps more importantly, it left him finally free to fulfill his greatest vision, the reconquest of the Western Empire. And this dream, he well knew, could be entrusted to one man and one man only, the 27-year-old Belisarius. The story of the reconquest of the Western Empire is really the story of Justinian's greatest general, a man Gibbon called the Scipio of New Rome. Though little enough is known about his early life, Belisarius was a natural leader of men, and his talents were quickly recognized by his superiors. A Romanized Greek born in modern-day Bulgaria, he served in the emperor's bodyguard, and so impressed Justinian that at the tender age of 25 he was appointed to the supreme command of the Army of the East. He demonstrated his brilliance immediately with a lightning campaign, concluding with an overwhelming victory against a much larger Persian army. Two years later, he was back in Constantinople, helping to put down the Nika revolt, and there, expecting to be sent to the east, he awaited Justinian's orders. With the empire at a time of relative peace, however, Justinian had different plans. Whether or not the empire was ruled by only one man, it was a single, indivisible realm, and therefore the current state of affairs, with half of it in the hands of heretical barbarians, was obviously unacceptable. Of course, Roman emperors had been wanting to reconquer the West ever since the Vandal sack of Rome in 455, or at least since 476, when the last Western emperor had been sent into a comfortable retirement. But there had been too many enemies pressing in on the frontiers. The armies had been of too uncertain loyalty, and the imperial throne itself had been too unstable. Now, with all of these problems solved, Justinian could address the embarrassing situation of a Roman Empire that didn't control the city of Rome. He turned first to the Vandal Kingdom of North Africa. Not only would this punish them for the sack of Rome, but it would provide a test for Belisarius to see the feasibility of the more important conquest of Italy. The perfect opportunity came when the Vandal King, who was on moderately good terms with the empire, was killed by his cousin Gelimer. When Justinian protested, the new Vandal King sent back a curt letter informing the Byzantines that nothing is more desirable than that a monarch should mind his own business. Gelimer had reason to be dismissive. The last Byzantine army that had invaded had been a hundred thousand strong and commanded by the dismal Basiliscus, who managed within days to turn what should have been an overwhelming victory into an unmitigated disaster. Belisarius, by contrast, sailed with only 15,000 men. He did not, however, get off to an auspicious start. Several sacks of biscuits were found to be moldy, and before they could be replaced, over 500 men had been poisoned. Belisarius decided to stop in Sicily to get supplies and information, and there got his first stroke of good luck. His personal secretary, Procopius, who is our primary historian for the period, happened to run into an old friend whose slave had recently returned from Carthage. The Vandals apparently hadn't heard about the approaching Byzantine fleet and had recently sent a large army to put down a revolt in Sardinia, a revolt, by the way, which had been encouraged by Justinian. Belisarius saw his chance. The Vandals were both unaware and unprepared, and he set sail at once. He landed unopposed and set out on the ten-day march to Carthage. Gelimer, 
by now aware of the invasion and seriously alarmed, gathered every soldier available and set an ambush in a narrow ravine outside the city. He divided his army into three parts, with his brother and himself in command, and struck just as the Byzantines were at the tenth milestone. As the fighting was fiercest, Gelimer happened to come upon the body of his brother and froze, overcome with grief. Belisarius saw his chance, charged, and scattered the vandals. Gelimer and the survivors fled the field, leaving Carthage defenseless. Two days later, Belisarius entered the city in triumph. He had instructed his soldiers carefully. This was not a conquest, but a restoration. There was no swagger or looting. Everything was paid for at a fair price. These were Roman citizens and were welcomed back into the empire. Belisarius, meanwhile, had begun to question the loyalty of his Hunnish mercenaries. He got word that Gelimer's surviving brother had returned from Sardinia with a huge Vandal army, had regrouped with Gelimer, and was now heading toward the city. Their advance guard cut the aqueduct, forcing him to make a decision. Preferring to be betrayed in the open rather than in a city, he duly marched out of the gates and met his enemies on a plain. The Romans had the advantage of better leadership and training, and quickly gained the upper hand. Once again, in the heat of the battle, Gelimer came on the body of his brother and hesitated, unable to continue fighting. Belisarius seized the moment and charged, and the Huns, who as suspected had stayed out of the fighting waiting to see who would win, joined the battle and turned the victory into a rout. Belisarius entered unopposed into Hippo, the city of Augustine, and took possession of Gelimer's vast treasury, as well as many high-ranking prisoners. Gelimer himself managed to escape the battle and hide out in the mountains for the winter, but by the following summer was forced to surrender. The Vandal Kingdom had been extinguished in little more than a year. The stunning reconquest of North Africa was for Justinian the most welcome news he could have received. Roman arms were once again feared, and all his dreams of reuniting the empire were not only possible, they were within his reach. Belisarius had vindicated his most cherished vision and had to be rewarded. Something more than a simple job well done was called for, and Justinian characteristically chose an extravagant reward. In the Roman Republic, the highest honor a general could receive was a triumph. He would ride on a chariot to the Hippodrome, followed by the most important and attractive of his prisoners, as well as all the wealth and spoils he had captured. Triumphs had eventually become reserved for emperors or members of the imperial family. The last non-imperial one had been given in 19 BC but the practice had gradually died out. Justinian announced that Belisarius would be granted a triumph. It was to be the last one ever given. The young general rode through the ecstatic crowds into the Hippodrome, followed by Gelimer, his family, and the most beautiful of the prisoners. Behind them, in a seemingly endless baggage train, came the spoils of war, including the solid silver menorah that Titus had seized from Jerusalem in 71 AD. At the climax of the ceremony, Gelimer, dressed in his royal robes, prostrated himself before Justinian and Theodora, and was heard to whisper, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Justinian could now send his general on his main quest, the invasion of Italy, and yet, against all expectations, Belisarius spent two years in Constantinople before sailing west. An invasion of Italy, however long anticipated, turned out to be a rather tricky diplomatic feat. The problem, embarrassingly enough, was that the city of Rome, and in fact all of Italy, was controlled by the Ostrogoths, who at least theoretically ruled it as a Byzantine viceroy. Even worse, the Ostrogothic nobility was friendly with the Pope and popular with the people, who rather than welcoming their liberation, would deeply resent the heavier Byzantine taxes that would surely follow the reconquest. 
Finding a pretext for invading, in other words, was both extremely important and rather difficult. He need not, however, have worried. Early the next year, the solution unexpectedly presented itself. The king of the Ostrogoths had recently died, leaving his wife Amalasuntha as regent for their only son. Amalasuntha, an extraordinary educated woman, ruled with an iron hand and was increasingly resented by the nobility. They plotted against her and succeeded in removing her son from her control to train him in more military endeavors. He immediately fell into bad company and was dead by sixteen. Now afraid for her life, Amalasuntha hatched a plot with Justinian to flee to Byzantine territory and then retake Italy with Byzantine help. With the still popular, rightful queen at his side, Justinian could look forward to an easy, popular reconquest. He gave the order, and in 535, Belisarius sailed with 7,500 men. Events, however, moved even faster. Amalasuntha's cousin had seized power and offered her a joint rule. She had accepted, and he had regretted his decision almost immediately. Relations quickly became strained, and he had her strangled in her bath. The way was now clear for a Byzantine invasion. With the queen's death, the Ostrogothic rule was now illegitimate, and could be disposed of at will. But this, as it turned out, was easier said than done. The campaign certainly got off to a good start. Belisarius conquered Sicily with barely an effort, overcoming the only Gothic resistance at Palermo by sailing his ships up to the city walls, hoisting his men up to the tops of the masts, and firing down on the beleaguered defenders. He prepared to cross over into Italy, but ran into the first of many delays. He was recalled to Africa to deal with a mutiny in Carthage, and he returned to find his own troops unhappy and on the verge of revolt. By the time he was able to restore morale, the campaigning season was over and he wasn't able to cross over to Italy until the next June. Once there, however, he acted with characteristic speed, conducting a lightning campaign which conquered most of southern Italy. Even the city of Naples, one of the crown jewels of the Gothic kingdom, heavily fortified and stoutly defended, couldn't hold out for long, and fell to one of his classic ruses. One of his soldiers, climbing up the aqueduct to see how it was constructed, found an old water channel that went into the walls. Belisarius, realizing that the opening was too small for an armored man, sent files to enlarge the opening and then noisily attacked another section of the wall to cover the sound. He then waited for nightfall, sent 600 men through, and launched a concerted attack. Within a matter of hours it was over. It was also the end for the Ostrogothic king. His response to the Byzantine invasion had been one of almost complete panic. He seemed paralyzed by fear and had not even sent a single soldier to aid Naples. The frustrated Goths had had enough. Blaming him for all their misfortune, they executed him and crowned a noble named Vitiges as the new king. Vitiges, surprisingly, followed in his predecessor's footsteps, announcing that he would not be defending Rome and would be withdrawing to Ravenna. By December, Belisarius, after cleverly getting the Pope's endorsement, triumphantly marched into the Eternal City as the Gothic garrison moved out. Gaining Rome, however, was one thing. Holding it was another. He had few illusions that the war was over, and his first actions were to repair the walls and to increase the supplies of grain. The Goths, he knew, would soon be arriving in force. They came in March of the next year, and drawing up before the walls of Rome, they settled down to a siege that would last a total of one year and nine days. Vitiges cut all ten aqueducts to the city, ending over a millennium of public fountains, plumbing, and hydraulic mills that made the city's flower. Belisarius improvised by using the rivers that ran through the city to power the mills, ensuring a constant supply of flour and bread throughout the siege, 
and then wrote to Justinian asking for reinforcements. Early the next year, some 6,500 of them arrived with supplies, tipping the balance in favor of the Byzantines. Belisarius now felt strong enough to go on the offensive and sent a commander named John with 2,000 horsemen on a raiding campaign to put pressure behind the Gothic lines. John succeeded in capturing the town of Rimini, 200 miles behind the front lines, and, more importantly, only 33 miles from the Gothic capital of Ravenna. Ancient and medieval sieges were often worse on the besieger than the besieged, with the invading army being exposed to the elements, famine, and often plague, having to wander further and further away to gather food, increasingly demoralized and vulnerable to counterattack. Vitigi's Gothic army was certainly no exception. By early 538, they were sick and dispirited, and in no mood to fight on. When the news came of the Byzantine capture of Rimini, Vitigis had had enough. He ordered the troops to burn their camps and drag the army back to Ravenna. The retreat, however, was made even more humiliating as Belisarius, somehow anticipating the move, poured his troops out of the city gates and left several hundred Gothic dead at the foot of the Milvian Bridge. The Italian campaign had been, by all accounts, a glorious one. Rome and most of Italy had been restored to the empire in less than two years. The Gothic kingdom, while not defeated, had been dealt a blow from which it would not recover. Belisarius had shown an inventiveness and daring not seen in Italy since Hannibal crossed the Alps, and this, as it turned out, was the root of all his frustrations in the years ahead. Theodora jealously guarded her husband's reputation and began to resent Byzantium's greatest general. He was too young, too successful, too brilliant, and too popular. In short, this was the stuff of which emperors were made. The first seeds of jealousy and distrust had been planted, and they would bear a bitter harvest. It was easy to convince Justinian that Belisarius needed watching. He was always amenable to her suggestions. The question was, who could be trusted to watch him? The man they chose was Narses, a eunuch in his sixties whose condition prevented him from wanting the throne himself, and, though no soldier, was the commander of the emperor's bodyguard. In adroit politician, he was indisputably the most powerful figure at court. Narses set sail with reinforcements and instructions to obey so far as seems consistent with the public good. With these rather vague commands, he arrived to find Belisarius in an angry mood. With the siege of Rome over, he had begun his drive north, mopping up Gothic resistance. The general John, whom he had sent with 2,000 cavalry to occupy the town of Rimini, was now dangerously exposed behind enemy lines. So Belisarius ordered him to withdraw, but John flatly refused. Leaving the arrogant John to his fate was no great loss, but Belisarius could ill afford to lose the 2,000 cavalry. When Narses arrived, the generals were in a meeting to decide what to do. Most of them were in favor of letting John get what was coming to him, and one after another of the young commanders got up to say so. Narses, however, thought differently. He spoke last, and his words left no doubt as to who was in charge. The capture, he said, of so important a Byzantine army inside Rimini could be a disaster, giving the Goths hope and perhaps becoming the turning point of the entire war. If, he concluded, turning to Belisarius, John has treated your orders with contempt. It is in your power to deal with him as you like once the city is relieved. But see that in punishing him for the mistakes that he has made through ignorance, you do not exact a penalty from which the emperor himself and from us his subjects. The implications were clear. John was to be rescued and to receive only minor discipline. Belisarius, who had kept silent in order to prevent from being overruled, had no choice but to mount a rescue operation. 
This he did with his customary panache, a brilliant amphibious campaign that tricked the Goths into thinking they were vastly outnumbered, and he saved the city just in time to prevent starvation. The moment was somewhat spoiled, however, when the beleaguered John ignored Belisarius altogether and gave the credit entirely to Narses, worsening the two commanders' already strained relations. The Byzantine army by this time was also deeply divided, half of them remaining loyal to Belisarius while the other half supported Narses, and to prevent any more friction, Belisarius wisely divided the army in half to mop up the north. As he was involved with this task, the Archbishop of Milan begged him to free the city, by this time the largest and richest in Italy. Unable to pass up such a good opportunity, he sent a thousand men to the Archbishop. They were greeted as liberators, and seven other cities threw open their gates and welcomed them. The problem was that each liberated city needed its own garrison, and by the time the army arrived in Milan, it was only 300 strong. When Vitiges learned that Milan had fallen, he sent an army 30,000 strong to retake it. The relief army that Belisarius sent, commanded in part by that same aggravating John, saw that it would be outnumbered, and sat down refusing to march a step further. When Belisarius ordered them to, they refused unless the command was countersigned by Narses. By the time the appropriate signature had been obtained, it was too late. The Milanese, who had been reduced to eating dogs and mice, despairing of any relief, surrendered to Vitiges. The Gothic vengeance was horrendous. The garrison was allowed to leave, but the Milanese men were all killed, and the women and children sold into slavery. The disaster had one positive effect. It convinced Justinian to recall Narses to the capital, leaving the army at last under a single, undisputed command. It was all Belisarius could have asked for. He consolidated his hold on southern Italy and prepared for the final push against the Goths. As the Byzantine armies closed in around his capital, Vitiges finally had some diplomatic success. He sent a letter to the Persian king Khosros, advising him to attack now that the empire was distracted by Italy. The Gothic interpreter was caught and brought before Justinian, who panicked and immediately decided to recall Belisarius to deal with the threat. Ambassadors were sent to Vitiges to hurriedly patch together a peace agreement, and arrived just as Belisarius was preparing the final assault. They haughtily informed the general that in exchange for an immediate peace, the Gothic king was allowed to keep half of his treasury and all of Italy north of the Po. Belisarius was horrified. Vitiges was on the verge of collapse. All he needed was a little more time, and all of Italy could be reclaimed. If Vitiges were to agree, then all the frustrations, all the careful planning and campaigning since Rome would be in vain. Fortunately, the Goths also thought the news was too good to believe. They suspected one of Belisarius's famous ruses and refused to accept the treaty without his signature. Belisarius seized his chance, and calling the treaty an insult since total victory was imminent, he refused to sign it without a direct order from Justinian. Vitiges replied with an unexpected secret offer. He would surrender if Belisarius would accept the crown of the Emperor of the West. Now most generals would have accepted with little hesitation. Ravenna was virtually impregnable, and Justinian's armies were far away. Since Belisarius had few if any military equals, there would have been little anyone could have done to dislodge him. Belisarius, however, did not waver. Instead, he decided to use the opportunity. Gathering the rest of his army together, he told them of his plan, and when they had given him their approval, he pretended to agree to the Gothic offer, marched into the city, accepted the surrender of Vitiges, and loaded all of the treasure and captives onto barges destined for Constantinople. It's not clear when the Goths realized they had been betrayed, but the war was at long last over. There was only some final cleaning up to do, and that, it was assumed, could be left to other men. 
Having reconquered Italy for the empire, Belisarius could return to Constantinople a hero. If he thought he would be welcomed with a triumph, however, he was sadly mistaken. He returned to the Queen of Cities to find Justinian glum and distrustful. Each victory had produced a somewhat mixed reaction. Theodore had always suspected that Belisarius was planning to usurp the throne, and his acceptance of Vitigi's proposal only confirmed this. But there was something more than just jealousy and suspicion. The mood of the capital should have been festive. Instead, there was an attitude of impending doom. The reason wasn't hard to see. Three weeks before, the Persian king Khosros had invaded, capturing Antioch, demolishing its buildings, and killing or enslaving its entire population. This was indeed serious news. Khosros was undoubtedly the greatest of all the Persian kings, and a worthy match for Justinian. He had reformed the government and fiscal system of his kingdom, created the first standing army, founded a medical academy, codified the Zoroastrian scriptures, and even introduced chess from China. But above all, he loved conquest. Not for settlement, but unabashedly for plunder. To keep the peace, the Byzantines had paid him 5,000 pounds of gold, with the promise of 500 more pounds per year. And yet, despite this, he invaded again in flagrant violation of his own treaty. When the citizens of Antioch failed to come up with his requested gold, he stripped everything of value from the buildings, sold the population into slavery, and went merrily on his way. Belisarius was sent, with every soldier available, but wasted an entire year dealing with one of his wife's notoriously public affairs. By the time it was successfully concluded, he quickly moved to confront the enemy and soon had tricked a far superior Persian army led by Khosros himself into retreating. Then, wanting a decisive blow to end the war, he prepared a massive assault on the Persian capital of Sestiphon. The attack, however, never happened. Starting in Egypt, the bubonic plague swept through both the Persian and the Byzantine empires. A later outbreak in the 14th century would be shudderingly remembered in Western Europe as the Black Death, but the 6th century outbreaks were perhaps even worse. It raged in Constantinople for four months, with the horrifying casualty rate of 10,000 per day. The dead fell in such numbers that they overwhelmed the graveyards and had to be piled up in an unused fortress until the corpses reached the ceiling. Even when the sickness abated, worse was to follow. The city ground to a halt, fields remained untended, shops closed, and famine followed on the heels of the plague. In the end, two-fifths of the population died, some 300,000 people. But most devastating of all, Justinian himself was struck. With the emperor on his deathbed, Theodora became acutely aware of her precarious grip on power. As a childless queen, her only chance to remain on the throne was to marry a trusted courtier or general and make them emperor. Her intentions, however, were not popular with the army, who felt that it was their historic right to choose the emperor. When news of the controversy reached the armies in the east, the generals gathered together to discuss what to do. As far as they knew, Justinian was already dead, and wanting to protect their rights, they agreed not to accept any decision made in Constantinople without their input or endorsement. It was a fateful decision, and Theodora would never forgive Belisarius for his part in it. By the time word of the meeting made its way back to Constantinople, Justinian, remarkably, had begun to recover, and when she heard the news, feeling much more secure, Theodora flew into a rage. Such disloyalty to her could not go unpunished. She recalled the two leaders of the meeting and flung one of them into a prison from which, as one historian was to say, he emerged more a shadow than a man. Belisarius, however, was too popular and powerful to treat in such a way. 
He was instead accused of keeping spoils from the African campaign, stripped of his command, his household was disbanded, and all his treasure was confiscated. The empire's most faithful general was barred from public service, humiliated, and spent almost a year in an undeserved disgrace. There is no greater testament to Belisarius's genius than the speed at which the frontiers collapsed without his presence. Africa revolted, the Persians ravaged Roman territory, and control of Italy completely disintegrated. He was quickly pardoned by a fully recovered Justinian and returned just in time to salvage Italy, but all the petty jealousies continued to plague him, making any final victory impossible. Though only forty, he arrived on Italian shores to undertake his mission, sadder, wiser, and one suspects, infinitely more tired. The future was to hold some notable successes, but Belisarius would spend most of the next twenty years in disappointing frustration, his requests for more men and supplies ignored, as lesser men accomplished the victories that should have been his. And yet, for all the unrewarded loyalty and scorn service, the real tragedy of Belisarius lies in what might have been. What might the emperor and his general have accomplished had not such petty jealousies unnecessarily drawn out the reconquest and made any lasting victory impossible? What might have been accomplished with just an ounce more of trust? Join me next time as I talk about the last years of Justinian's reign, the final reconquest, the stunning building campaign, and the end of an age. Twelve Byzantine Rulers is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West, the forgotten Byzantine empire that rescued Western civilization. Look for Lost to the West on Amazon.com or at your local bookstore. Visit us at 12byzantinerulers.com.